Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Edward Tenner will join us to discuss the efficiency paradox. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, it's no secret that we're obsessed with efficiency, but is the quest for efficiency really all it's cracked up to be in the long run? Well, in the new book, The Efficiency Paradox What Big Data Can't Do, author Dr. Edward Tenner explores this topic for a general audience. Dr. Tenner is this distinguished scholar of the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation and a visiting scholar in the Rutgers University Department of History. He was a lecturer at the Humanities Council at Princeton, and his essays and reviews have appeared in numerous outlets including the New York Times, Washington Post, and The Atlantic. He is the author of numerous works, including his latest again, which is entitled The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. And uh, Dr. Tenner, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. Well, a fascinating topic you've written here in your new book, The Efficiency Paradox. I'm curious, how did you become interested in, in this topic? It grew on very gradually. I was starting to write this as a somewhat different kind of book, in the uh, early years of the century, around 2005, and then I saw that a new web and a new technological world was emerging from the quote-unquote old internet of the 1990s, about which I'd written in the first book in the series, Why Things Bite Back. And I'd done another book on technology and the body, also on unintended consequences, called Our Own Devices, How Technology Remakes Humanity. So I was working on the third book, and as I was working on it, I started to notice that the rise of mobile computing plus a revival of artificial intelligence that had gone into the doldrums and was neglected in the um, 1990s were really transforming how we saw technology, and especially Although Amazon uh, was already a very well-established company, and although Google uh, went public in 2005, what I saw was that uh, the confluence of all these companies and technologies were producing a world in which uh, the, uh, the cloud and the availability of extremely efficient ways to connect buyers and sellers, uh, which I call platform efficiency, starting to dominate the, the economy and the world with some very good but also some troubling consequences. And I kept observing, and eventually I found that it was time to uh, talk about the patterns and to finish the book. Uh, so this thing that you call platform efficiency, how is it different from the, the efficiency that existed uh, before this change? Well, the classical industrial revolution was really based on the transformation of manufacturing from one piece at a time to a continuous stream. The best example that I know actually is the development of a system still used today for producing paper in rolls. And this meant that it was possible to 
make newspapers, to make books, to make all kinds of printed material much more cheaply because in the 18th century, every single sheet of paper had to be made by hand as traditional Japanese paper is still made today. So we had a, a, an era of mass literacy made possible by that, but we also had, for example, uh, the meatpacking industry of my native Chicago, which was based on a kind of production line, uh, which also helped inspired uh, inspire the um, the automobile assembly line and and uh, other processes like the production of bottles, the production of cans. All of these things are kind of coming off a, a continuous roll. Uh, for example, when an appliance is made, uh, the manufacturer generally doesn't work with with metal sheets. The metal is delivered in coils and then. Uh, special machines uh, bend the, the the steel from the coils and form the the uh, outside of the uh, of, of the devices. So we have a, a world in which uh, the efficiency of producing streams of things is still extremely important. But now, in addition to those streams, there are m- much greater profits to be made uh, by not by manufacturing things which tend to become commodities, but by uh, mediating between uh, buyers and sellers or providers of services and the people who want services. So now with more distributed manner of doing, how is it then that efficiency that it provides is really not such a good thing in the long run? See, there are problems in it. It's not necessarily that it's a bad thing and in fact be in very bad shape without a good deal of artificial intelligence. Think of how fraudulent credit card charges can usually, not always, but can usually be caught by very sophisticated programs that can recognize when a purchase deviates from what somebody is doing. If uh, a credit card or a normal uh, consumer suddenly uh, shows a, a, a charge for a really expensive motorcycle in a city where they've never been, and that is something that obviously raises flags. But there are also many more uh, subtle things. Uh, There may still be too much spam, but in Gmail and probably the other major programs, the artificial intelligence programs have been doing a better job of distinguishing spam from legitimate email. So we, we really depend on this kind of efficiency. My problem with that is that if this becomes one-sided, if the whole of uh, investment is is now oriented toward that sort of efficiency, uh, then we have a, uh, a kind of starvation of a lot of other things that may be much more difficult. I give the example in the book of how it took 20 years to go from the original patent uh, for dry photocopying to the Xerox 914 which was in a lot of ways the origin of the computer revolution because the technology later adopted by Apple was really developed at the Xerox uh, Palo Alto Research Laboratory. So we, we have a, a world in which, this, uh, in which the platforms are getting uh, more than their due share of attention and, of course, in which the platforms also compete, for example, with uh, the uh, newspapers, with magazines, uh, quite a few of the publications that I've uh, written for have not survived because of that drain of advertising to organizations that claim that they are more efficient. Now, the one problem, by the way, is that it's still not really clear 
as far as the production of sales, how much more efficient uh, advertising through Facebook, for example, or through Google is than conventional advertising. In fact, in general, we don't have a lot of big data about the effectiveness of big data. Assuming that they're they're equal in some sense, why doesn't this just represent sort of a shift in in terms of moving for the next step, or or what's the limitation, or what what's the breakdown here? The, the issue really isn't so much the move from paper to online, or I I think it'd be better phrased as a, as a combination of paper and online publication. And I argue in the book that each of those has its own characteristic strength, and in many ways we retain information differently and understand some things better with one and with the other. There's still a a very strong case for paper maps, for paper textbooks, even though the electronic kind also have have a a lot of very important uh, important uses. But what I'm I'm really trying to, to say is that newspapers in the 1990s, and I spoke at a um, at a one or two conferences on news media, were very confident that the new technology was really not going to change that much because it just meant that they would be getting the same advertisers, except the advertisers now might be spending less on paper newspaper ads. They they might not want paper at all. All of newspapers might be going over to electronic publication, but essentially the newspapers, because they were providing quality material, would still have an advantage, and the established newspapers would have the biggest advantage of all. There was a phrase called content is king, and they were a little bit complacent, and one of the very interesting things about the web was that the peak of newspaper profits actually was uh, 10 years after the launch of the World Wide Web in 2005. So it was really quite a shock for them to see how uh, the new uh, platforms, especially Google advertising and then Facebook advertising, were siphoning away a lot of the money that was formerly going to native digital advertising on their electronic editions. Why is it then that the old enterprises then can't adapt to the new platforms? Part of it has been difficulty in adjusting the editorial mix for current audiences. For example, The Economist has remained a a profitable enterprise internationally because it gives people who have the money to pay a substantial subscription fee news that they feel is really worth it to them financially. And there are are a number of other publications, the English satirical uh, magazine, uh, Private Eye, for example, I recently read is profitable. So I think it's it's really uh, partly a question of editorial imagination. I read one uh, newspaper columnist critique of the industry uh, from around uh, 2005, where he was suggesting that it, it had become it had become complacent. So many things are not necessarily unavoidable results of technology, but I think a lot of them are just a, a matter of, of, of trends, that uh, this is what a new, these are the ads that a new generation of media buyers want to buy, and it's not necessarily that they can prove that they're any better than the old uh, native ads in, um, 
in, in magazines and, and newspapers, but they seem to provide more useful statistics, or they do provide more useful statistics about the number of people who clicked, the number of people who saw them. But it's, it's in, in many cases, it's much harder to, to say uh, what they actually contributed to sales because the sales might be made in a way that has no direct link to uh, their browsing and clicking, and that is called the attribution problem. I also explore in the book a couple of fields, education, medicine, and geography, in terms of how platform efficiency is trying to change it, but really has sort of failed and not really lived up to its expectations. What is it about these fields that you're interested in, and why is it that kind of platform efficiency has not really taken root? I chose them because people have have high expectations, all of them, for medicine, for geography, and for education. And there is quite a bit of utopianism especially in, in medicine and in education. But the results so far have been inconclusive or, or disappointing. For example, electronic diagnosis is still not necessarily better than what skilled uh, physicians can do. But also, for example, in the case of medicine, there have been problems with the proliferation of false positives. So programs may be very efficient, but they also are efficient in in generating a lot of worrisome signals. And these worrisome signals in turn have to be resolved by tests. And sometimes those tests have uh, negative um, side effects of of their own. So what starts out as, as something that is promoting more efficient medicine can, if you're not careful, Uh, turn into its opposite. And then, of course, when you're compiling the electronic records that are are generating the big data, uh, somebody has to input them, somebody has to judge what a procedure should be called. There are are elaborate schemas for describing uh, just what a doctor does and how much they're paid for. And the work of this has really, according to physicians' organizations, been taking doctors' time from actually understanding their patients. You you think you need a little bit of the intuition that uh, doctors have that really can't be replaced by algorithmic processes? Yeah, I think it isn't just the intuition in in diagnosis, but also in in the course of treatment, uh, the, the, the patient's belief in the healing power of the doctor and the doctor's judgment of the preferences of an individual, many times there are choices that have to be made in, in treatment, and those depend on the, the, the personality and values of the patient. And you can have all the statistics in the world, but if a doctor who has them knows that a patient is, is just going to reject this, won't like this, won't accept this, needs that, then the doctor will be able to do a lot more. So it, it isn't that that the technology is bad. It's, it's really very good, but that the practice of medicine with technology alone really ignores the role of the patient's uh, personality and, and preferences and values, and good doctors are very much aware of that. What, what about in the field of education? Everyone uh, certainly thinks that uh, the, the new technologies are going to revolutionize education, but yet here we are still sort of going through the same processes there. There has been a thought ever since the days of Thomas Edison that the classroom was really an obsolete institution, and there has to be some kind of uh, technical means to deliver education 
uh, more quickly, cheaply, and effectively. And Thomas Edison once declared that education as we know it is only 3% effective. And he believed it could be made 100% effective and efficient. Uh, the problem is that so many of the people who write about that have never actually taught a class. Uh, many of them are computer entrepreneurs or other entrepreneurs like, like Edison, and they, uh, they certainly mean very well. But Edison discovered that the audiovisual, they were actually mainly visual materials at, at, the, at the time that he produced for the schools, uh, were really not accepted by teachers or, or administrators. And so that was one of his uh, less uh, successful programs. It was a personal program of his and not one of the company. But there have been other other initiatives like that. Now, my position on education is not that technology uh, will, will never really enhance education. It's just that so far uh, the results have been uh, disappointing. Programmed learning, uh, individualized learning. Uh, massive online uh, courses have been have been successful, but they're really more or less uh, conventional courses that are uh, presented through electronic means, and the uh, the uh, unwritten uh, catch of those is that uh, the professor has to spend a lot of time, uh, quite a few hours per hours. Uh, of, of video, for example, online uh, preparing that. So it, it is not something that, that's automatic. It's something that's very laborious. Some of those courses are, are excellent, and they're often accompanied by excellent uh, textbooks. So, so one of the things that I learned in writing a book is that that the people who develop the, the, the MOOCs, these courses, are also... Uh, selling more copies of their textbook because to get the most out of the course you need a textbook and it's most helpful to have a paper textbook rather than to try to follow uh, two electronic means, one of them an electronic book and the other uh, a, a uh, an electronic series of, of lectures. So I open, I, I leave it open that that one day we will really be able to do this, but there's a there's a problem that I mention in education in general, which is called the curse of knowledge, and that is that the people who know a lot about something have a hard time thinking back to when they really didn't know it and how they how they learned it. So it it takes a very 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 skilled person to um, present material in a way that responds to all kinds of wrong assumptions that, that people are making. It, 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 it is an art, and there are some teachers who are, who are extremely good at that, and some of them have done electronic uh, courses. But we still are really far from a, the, the goal of electronic tutorials that will bring people up to date with a, with a deep understanding of a subject. And, and I should add that one of the problems of the electronic book and electronic media generally is that they can give people a false sense that they really understand something. And uh, in, in psychology, this is called fluency. So you read something a couple of times and you, you can follow it. But if you ask someone a question that requires them to make a creative 
use of this knowledge as they would in, in real life. They're, they're not always able to do it because in order to learn, you have to either be quizzed constantly or you have to quiz yourself. It has to be a matter not just of of uh, being able to recite what's somewhere, but being able to understand and use it. And that is uh, that is a frontier. And uh, uh, But again, I, I, I am far from saying that it can't be done. You know, in all these areas, we have sort of this tension, if, if you will, between uh, the algorithmic nature of, of the platform and uh, the intuition that needs to really be added to it. I mean, how do we balance the two? Everybody has to find their own balance. I'm not saying that there is a formula that's right in, in every situation. Uh, I, I use the metaphor of, uh, of a perfect five, uh, but sometimes the scale is best 25-75 or 75-25. The main point that the book conveys, though, is that people shouldn't be intimidated by talk of the future, that this or that is inevitable, that we all have to bow and accept the new order. Uh, they also shouldn't be so discouraged that they adopt a, a, a you know, position of, of opposing any kind of change as, as, being, as being anti-human. And the purpose of the book really is to give people confidence in their own judgment and common sense. That would be probably the best way I could summarize it in one sentence. Well, the new book is called The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do, uh, the author, Dr. Edward Tenner. And uh, Dr. Tenner, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.